Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio Free CR 855 on your AM dial. And I'm Sandrine Berges from Bill Kent University, Ankara. The sun has set in your life. It is getting cold. The hundreds of people around you cannot console you for the loss of one. Maria Augusta Trapp, the story of the Trapp family singers. Good afternoon, listeners, and thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Kathleen Norlock about miscarriage, reproductive loss and fetal death. This is part one of a two-part interview. to the program. Thank you for having me. So could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Oh sure. So I'm the Kenneth Mark Drain Chair in Essex at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario in Canada and that means that I teach in the area of moral theory and applied ethics and I'm the author of Forgiveness from a Feminist Perspective but the reason you're calling me is that I'm also a co-editor of a special journal issue on miscarriage and reproductive loss. What was it that inspired you to study miscarriage, reproductive loss and fetal death? I've always been interested in feminist ethics, but what inspired me to study this was that I am one of the one in four women who miscarry a pregnancy. So that was of personal interest to me. And I was not, even as I experienced it, I wasn't thinking of, writing about it or researching it, until I started having the experience of, of having to go forward back into the world in which I thought I'd be bringing a baby, <laughs> and instead had to, you know, interact socially with people during and after miscarriage, and my experience was like a lot of women. There was silence around the event, even though the effects were ongoing, so I'm, I'm one of those people for whom miscarriage takes much more than just a day, right? It took months. And then I saw a CFP, a call for papers, on the subject of motherhood. And I, re- I distinctly remember that it referred to most women in philosophy as typical childless academics who are, who are childless by choice. And I realized, 
I, I do not identify myself as that at all anymore. Like, I just, I didn't even see myself in the description of women in philosophy as typical childless academics. And I, that's when I realized that my own sense of my own identity had fundamentally changed so much that when people casually referred to those of us who are women in philosophy with no children as typical and typically childless by choice, that I needed to, I needed to make something clearer than philosophers seem to be making clear. I wanted to, I wanted people to talk about miscarriage and pregnancy loss as this sort of social and socially constructing experience. That is what inspired me. Yeah, look, it's, it's very, very difficult. A, a friend of mine had two miscarriages and, oh. you know, it was, it was very, well, she, she never went on to, to have any, any children. And yeah, it was it was very you know it is very devastating when that happens. I mean, well, it's devastating anyway. But I think if you if you do go on to have a child, it, it's probably it's something to keep your mind occupied, and it's a bit of a distraction from the from oh, the yeah. grief. But she found that there wasn't it didn't have anything to sort of mark this child sort of being conceived. So she went and got a, a little ceramic pram and put it on her mantle to signify the the baby but did you think that there's things that people can do to actually to, to sort of help that grieving process yes and in some clinical settings and medical settings they even encourage women who have experienced miscarriage to go through some sort of observance or ritual in order to mark that grieving process so some women are encouraged to hold the remains or hold a substitute, hold a, a doll or a, an urn or anything, right? My concern is at those times when some women are not devastated, they do not want to mark the experience in this way, and they are also encouraged to go through a grieving ritual that does not speak to them or their experience. So it's tricky to know exactly what the right response is and, and who needs this. And so, of course, my number one concern, the reason I would like more people to do research on this topic is... It seems to me the best way to know what to offer people as a way to mark such a loss is to ask them what they want. <laughs> Lost in a lot of the discussions of reproductive freedom and clinical treatment is what does the woman who's going through the experience want? So I'm trying to, in, in all my work, make the, the, the person who's going through the experience the center of that experience, that we should, we should listen more and be more responsive to the variety of things that, that women who miscarry will tell the rest of us. That's a really good point because everybody grieves in a, in a different way or, as you said, some people don't grieve. And look, what sort of verbal responses would be the best in this situation? I think a lot of people just don't really know what to say, do they? Yeah, I agree. So when I first thought about this project, and I was talking to the people who ended up being my co-editors, Byron Stoyles and Ann Cahill, they're both philosophers as well, and Byron Stoyles and Ann Cahill and I started joking that, you know, we should, we should print up cards, greeting cards, hallmark cards that say, <laughs> you have had a miscarriage. I'm sorry to hear that. That stinks. Right, that we want to make cards that we can give people that say, "I recognize that something happened to you. I am sad to hear it. I hope you're all right. Let me know what I can do." Uh, so, before we even brought out this journal issue, 
we, the three of us were on a panel together at a conference, the Canadian Society for Women in Philosophy. And we presented our papers on miscarriage and pregnancy loss to the room. And I ended mine by saying, since we were joking about making these cards and we don't have them, I just want to say, if you're like me and you've had the experience of pregnancy loss or miscarriage, that experience was probably bad. And I'm sorry it happened to you. And I'm happy to talk if you, or listen if you want me to listen. And I think that kind of attention to people who have the experience, that just offering of your attention, would be a, a great service to people who've suffered miscarriage and pregnancy loss. And it's more than we, we usually give people, right? Yes, statistically, a very high rate of pregnancies end in miscarriage, so it's a fairly common occurrence. However, it's seldom discussed. Why do you yeah. think this is? That's a, it's a really good question. And what concerns me about the way it's seldom discussed today is I am certain that it used to be discussed much more. I mean, especially in Anglophone history and culture. If you read older literature, older novels and diaries and press accounts, older literature will refer to the loss of pregnancy and stillbirths and the deaths of children. It was, it was more common for us to talk to each other and to frankly acknowledge especially stillbirths and child death, but also pregnancy loss. So I think as a culture, we've actually gotten worse at this over time because, and I'm, I blame the 20th century, because we have become unaccustomed to death and more accustomed, much more accustomed, I think in some bad ways, to managing all embodied experiences as if they were medical events over which we have complete control. So... And I think this is true of cancer and of heart disease, of diabetes and, and weight. I think this is true of a lot of things, that we have this fantasy as a result of 20th and 21st century medicine, that we, we should have control over these things as if they were all medical events and, and that people are in some way to blame or at fault when we don't control these things. So any form of failure at controlling this embodied experience is now, I think, much more difficult for us to articulate and death, as any part of this, is so alien to us now that we lack any kind of shared cultural script. So it struck me the other day, this was just last week, I was reading an old Charles Dickens novel. And a character in the, a very minor character, says, just in passing, it was so casually done, because this would have been so ordinary in Charles Dickens' time. She says, I, ha I have born five children and raised four, and I know what I'm talking about. And it's just a, a minor character, a passing comment. And of course, to Dickens' readers, it was perfectly ordinary to say, I've born five children and raised four. Because of course that happened. Of course people lost pregnancies and lost children. And today we are very bad at it, and I think blame each other when we fail. How do you think that philosophers can help this situation? <laughs> I, I would that we did more. So, <laughs> I mean, my short... My short answer is I think philosophers should do more feminist philosophy. <laughs> but my, my longer and more serious answer is that philosophers have often retreated to the safety of abstract theory. And we should, and we could, we'd be really good at it. We should more often offer ourselves, especially in non-philosophical circles, in, in clinical circles, and in social and psychology circles, we should offer ourselves as people who perhaps could attend to 
changes in body and identity. We could, we could offer the work we've already done in bioethics to people who are not familiar with philosophy. And philosophers are, traditionally, we're really good at looking at death. We are some of the best thinkers about death. We do thanatology. And I think we should offer that to people who perhaps have become sort of accustomed to thinking of pregnancy as a medical event rather than an embodied experience which can include death, and traditionally does. We're just bad at saying so. So I think philosophers should get out there more. We should, we should, leave, we should leave the safety of philosophy and talk to people in other arenas where they might not realize we have something to offer with respect to insights about death and vulnerability and identity. So what are the important questions regarding grief and loss? Yeah, it's a good question. So my, my first and most important, I think, is that we should bear in mind that miscarriage is not the same for everyone. So one of the most important questions from my perspective is, what is the full array of experiences with grief and pregnancy loss? What are the varieties that we don't know about or talk about? I'm saying this in part because my experience was more protracted. My, for a number of reasons, my doctor inspired, encouraged me to have, well, what I can only call a natural miscarriage. A surgical option was not on the table, so this was going to take a while. I was going to be cramping and discharging. I had a lot of nights where my uterus would wake me up in the middle of the night, so I was, I was rather sleepless. I would bleed unexpectedly. And like a lot of women, I was still trying to be completely competent at work, right? Completely pretend that nothing was happening and nothing was wrong, except when I was having trouble carrying on my work duties. So I think we should, like the good phenomenologists that philosophers can be, I think we should ask, what is the full array of experiences with grief and loss? What are the varieties of miscarriage that we don't know or talk about? How might it be a one-day experience for one person, a year-long experience for another? And we also have really different medical experiences. Uh, so I, I do try to, when my own students come to cover subjects of pregnancy and death, my students so habitually refer to these as if they were only medical experiences. I'm constantly trying to remind them it's an embodied experience. It's not necessarily a medical experience. But having said that, the medical experience is part of the ongoing awareness. So we should ask people about their different medical experiences. We should do more concerted clinical and biomedical ethics where we ask people, how well was it handled? How badly was it handled? Are, are there things that could be done differently for you in a medical context? Yeah, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. It's, it's really that awful. Was a bad year. <laughs> yeah, well, it certainly was. Now, I'm in philosophy, so I was, of course... Well, actually, there, is one, there was one other woman in the department I was working in, but she was on sabbatical. So that year, I was the only woman in my department. And it, it, I didn't even know how to explain to the, a coworker the day I needed someone to go and tell my class that it was canceled. I, I didn't know how to tell him, I'm bleeding uncontrollably, and I'm cramping like crazy, and I can't hold my class right now. And I didn't know how to tell him any of this. So I just said, I'm having a medical emergency. And he looked at what seemed to me my perfectly well body. <laughs> and he looked completely confused as to why I might be saying I had a medical emergency. And, uh, and I found that there was, no, there was no 
like most workplaces, right, there's no accommodation for women who are having an ongoing miscarriage. If you have a live birth, you get medical leave. You get maternity leave. If you don't have a live birth, you are rather on your own. Mm, that's that's a really good point. Yeah, and, and especially not, not having that support or, or not even being able to tell yeah, tell a man what the medical emergency was because they, they really wouldn't understand. Well, I mean, perhaps I, I could have articulated it really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, I think this was one of the, the better men in philosophy. He probably would have been very receptive, but I, it wasn't the best moment to go into a lengthy explanation as to why a miscarriage is not a one-day event for everybody. <laughs> Oh well, it's a very it's a very personal experience as well. I mean, as you were saying, it's different different for everybody. But with it sort of going on for so long, it's it's, it's just awful. I mean, a, a friend of mine I went to school with, <clears throat> her baby died inside of her, oh, and okay. it, it took a while for them to remove the baby. And and she speaks about it now, like oh well, but and then after that, her. Her husband said, well, I really wanted children, so he left. Oh, oh, what a heartbreaker. So it was My husband, like a double way, a I double obligated whammy. to say so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of those issues as well. I mean, if a man wants children and a woman actually can't have children, you know, often that's, that's the end of their relationship. Yeah, and it's the end of, I mean, it's the, a change in a lot of things, right? So one of the things that all the authors in this special journal issue we did try to pay attention to in the Journal of Social Philosophy, I should say. But one of the things that all the authors try to pay some attention to is the extent to which pregnancy and pregnancy loss and birth, these, are, these don't just involve, you know, a fetus or a baby. They really involve the identities of parents. So... The way I saw myself changed uh, when I found out I was pregnant, and the way I saw myself changed when I realized I was miscarrying. And that, too, it's... I remember the reaction of somebody who heard I had a miscarriage and and whose mind was immediately occupied by this baby. And I thought, (laughs) I know I was going through a lot that year, but I found myself thinking, to heck with this baby that doesn't exist. I'm... What about me? <laughs> so it is also a shift in one's personal identity, right? So uh, although I think it's heartbreaking that someone's partner would leave her because he wanted something else, I also know that when he thought he was going to be a father, that was probably a shift in his identity too. You know, he'd already started laying plans to be a different sort of person and have a different sort of future. And I've, I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. I think it's to an extent it's inevitable that... Things like pregnancies and deaths, they make us vulnerable to changes in identity that we don't have a, a complete control over either. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Professor Catherine Norlock about miscarriage, reproductive loss and fetal death. Could you explain about the connection of the legal status of the fetus? I could, and that varies depending on where you are. In, in my experience, uh, miscarriage at first doesn't feel like it has anything to do with the legal status of the fetus. 
But you will quickly find out, depending on where you live, um, that those legal status of the fetus issues will be imposed upon women who miscarry, especially if you are suspected of being a woman who harmed the fetus. So in my own experience, I needed, since I was not viable for a surgical option, I needed particular kinds of prescription drugs. And in the USA today, there are at least a dozen jurisdictions in which pharmacists are pharmacists are protected in their interests of declaring conscientious objection to even dispensing certain drugs to women they suspect of having had abortions. So this is indirectly a way to provide some sort of protection to the legal status of the fetus. And it is directly a protection of pharmacists who believe that fetuses have something like personhood or moral status, right? Depending on where you live, your pharmacist may look at you standing there at the counter asking for a prescription to be filled uh, because you are cramping in the night and bleeding uncontrollably. And that pharmacist can debate whether or not you are a good person who deserves this drug. And they can conscientiously object to filling that prescription on the grounds that you might be one of the bad women. So I never felt more pro-choice than I did when I was going through a miscarriage and actually grieving the loss of my own pregnancy. But running smack into the experience of a pharmacist who wanted to know what I wanted my prescription for, which is a question that in all the years I'd taken my parents to get prescriptions filled for heart disease and diabetes (laughs) and cancers, they'd never been asked what they wanted their prescriptions for. Only I was asked because the pharmacists want to know more about whether I'm a good woman or a bad woman. Oh, and then not long after my experience, there was a news story that I actually wrote about in the Feminist Philosopher's blog because it angered me. There was a news story about um, nurses in a post-operative care facility in New York City who refused to treat women in post-op care if they had had abortions. This bothered me because, and and of course the news story was whether or not the nurses had a right to refuse post-op care. But what bothered me is that if I'd gotten my surgical option instead, I would have been in the same ward. Uh, whether you have had an abortion or had uh, a DNC to finish a miscarriage that is painful and ongoing, the fact is you end up in the same ward. You end up a woman in post-op care who needs people to support you and help you because you are suffering. So again, even in jurisdictions where you have some reproductive freedom, where the legal status of the fetus is not an issue, there may be indirect protections of pharmacists and nurses that end up indirectly advancing the moral status of a fetus, but at the expense of the moral status of women who are suffering and need medical care. Well, even the word miscarriage is really referred to in medical terms as a spontaneous abortion, isn't it? Yes. Yes, in all these cases. I think, again, because we are so accustomed to thinking of medical events as things over which we ought to have control, we've gotten very bad at keeping in firm view that pregnancies are vulnerable things. They're not guaranteed, and I think we are in the habit of, consciously or not, blaming women for any pregnancy that doesn't succeed, even though, of course, the statistics suggest half of all pregnancies are are very vulnerable. So even if you don't choose abortions, this is not a, pregnancies are not things that are guaranteed. 
No, no, they're certainly not. I think that uh, a lot of pregnancies end in miscarriage before a woman even knows that she's pregnant. Yes, yes. And we do not gather around toilets and, and hold funerals just in case, right? It does seem to be the case that we, we really are holding double standards in our heads, that on the one hand, we don't care about the ones we don't know about. And on the other hand, there does seem to be this high interest in the, the moral and legal status of the fetus. The moment you suspect a woman of exerting some control over her own pregnancy. <laughs> so uh, I do suspect that a lot of concerns about the, the moral and legal status of fetuses are, whether people intend it or not, in a way unconcerned with the, the well-being and the agency of women. Mm, yeah, it's quite interesting too because a lot of pregnancies start off as twins, but either one yeah. one will be miscarried or one twin sort of absorbs the other twin, which is another yeah. interesting fact that uh, a lot of people don't realise. Yeah, I think we should. I think we should probably talk to each other enough to to reaccustom ourselves to the idea that a, a great deal of conception and pregnancy and birth is simply not up to us. On the one hand, I'm, I'm defensive of reproductive freedom, partly because I, I didn't like this sort of different treatment of women based on whether or not you think they're good or bad. And on the other hand, <laughs> I think we should all get better at agreeing that uh, there's an extent to which all these embodied experiences are dynamic, that there is a lot we, we don't know and can't really blame each other for the success or failure of. That's right. Well, even with IVF, I mean, when anybody's having having trouble, having problems having children, people just say, oh, well, we'll just go and have IVF. But depending on the, the individual and the age and a lot of other factors, I mean, that's that's very limited in its assistance to people, isn't it? Yes, it is. And And IVF can also involve creating a number of embryos. So I grew up in the USA, I now live in Canada, and in both countries, traditionally, abortion was seen as morally wrong, while IVF did not get subjected to the same scrutiny because these were people who wanted children. Except that IVF, of course, often involves destroying fertilized eggs and even embryos. So I think there is, again, this sort of different perception as to whether you approve or disapprove of the parent. And it's, it's described as concerns with the moral status of fetuses. But if one was so concerned with every fertilized egg, then one would have to be opposed to IVF because of the number of fertilized eggs that are created and destroyed in the process. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, it's been really good speaking to you today. It's my pleasure. And I've been speaking with Professor Catherine Norlock about miscarriage, reproductive loss and fetal death. Well, that's the end of the program today, and this is part one of a two-part interview. So do tune in next week for part two, and also keep listening for Are You Looking at Me?